Hey, good morning, Georgetown Christian. <clears throat> so many of you know that I, my name is Chris Tanner. I'm the teaching pastor at Georgetown, and it's uh, such a privilege to get to share the Word of God with you today. If you would open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3, we're still looking at this word, repent, that John the baptizer comes saying. But it's like, uh, let's just be calendar aware for a second. It is right towards the middle end-ish of February, right? And so for all of us who are resolution makers and, and goal setters, Right about now is when you start to reflect on whether you really did try at all to eat healthy this year or whether you really did say, I am going to stick to a budget, I am going to lower my debt. And you start to evaluate, like, did I say I was going to spend more time at work or less time? Because I'm sure here a lot, right? And maybe some of you have experienced this as you're going through uh, the grocery store and you're, maybe you're still like hanging on and you're like putting vegetables in the cart only to know that when you go home, you put them in the prison bin, like the coffin, like everyone has one of these in your fridge, right? You put your vegetables there and they go there to die, right? They go there to never again. It's like a life sentence. You put them in and like in December, you open it up, you go, science experiment. I wonder who started that, right? So I don't know if that's a, how life works for some of you, but we all tend to slip a little, don't we? We all can backslide from time to time. And the Bible addresses that. Uh, before we get into the scriptures, and I told you we're going to be in Matthew chapter 3, I want to share a story of a friend of mine, and we'll just call him JD, okay? Because we're all online now, and JD could go pull this up, and he didn't tell me I could share this story, but man, it's as public as it will ever be on social media, so I feel like I have some permission. JD was a, JD was a friend that I knew from church, but somewhere along like the freshman year, my freshman year, JD would get scarce when it came to church or youth group, right? And it seemed like when school picked up, he kind of dropped out of church, right? Well, we went to a conference at uh, Kentucky Christian University, the university I wound up going to. And uh, I'm sitting next to him, and it's altar call time. And he taps me on the leg. He's like, man, I think the Lord's calling me to repent. And I'm like, awesome. You, what do you want to do? He's like, I got to go forward. So we go forward together. And then, of course, they have you go up to this room for counseling together. And I go up to the room, and man, I'm just, I'm in awe of what God's doing in people's lives. And <laughs> So is JD, you know, he's confessing his sin and he's saying, I want to have Jesus back in my heart and my life and I want to make him king again, right? So we go back home, we spend the rest of the summer in youth group together and church together, it's awesome, right? But so many of you have experienced this. JD starts to backslide. We're not even into like September at school, right? And JD is at the bonfire more than he's at church or youth group and he's looking for his next hit and his next high and JD is just living the old life he used to live. We all have that same issue of backsliding or the sin that nags and we just can't kick. Paul addresses this when he writes to the Christians in Rome. So you might want to keep your finger in Matthew chapter 3. You don't have to turn over to Romans 7, but if you'd like to, great. We'll have it on the screen as well. Romans 7.15, Paul says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do... I don't do, but what I hate, I do. And maybe that describes your life this morning. Maybe that's a, a resolution that you made early this year where you said, I know that God wants me to be serving this year. I need to serve my neighbor. Maybe I need to serve my family. Maybe I need to serve my church. I don't know what God has called you to. Maybe it really is the budget. Maybe you need to put the credit card away and leave it away. And you've experienced that where you're, you're saying, God, I don't, I don't understand what I do. Because 
what I want to do, I don't do. And what I hate, I hate. I do that. So Paul's sympathetic to that, right? Paul understands that we, we find ourselves, even as Christians, he's writing a letter to Christians, even as Christians, we find ourselves in that position. So how does that apply to Matthew 3? John the baptizer's ministry starting, right? If you would turn in your scriptures to Matthew chapter 3 with me. Uh, we've been doing uh, this word repent in verse 2 because as so many of you know, it's the beginning and no pop quiz today, but man, if it comes up again, you better be ready. Repent is a command given by John the baptizer, by Jesus, by the apostles, and at the foundation of what? What are we gathered today? At the foundation of the church, right? So this command is the starting point both for those who don't know Christ, and it's also the springboard in our everyday walk with Christ. It's a foundational element of Christianity, and the word is repent. So that's why I spent three sermons on it. It's critical to our salvation and to our growth and maturation in Christ. That's in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, where we read that John the baptizer comes saying, repent for the kingdom heaven is at hand. Now, as we examine that word repent, I want to zoom down real quick with me. We're not going to skip the rest of these uh, verses like permanently, but I want to go down to seven and eight. And in order to understand the word repent, I want to go to verses seven and eight. If you would join me there in verses seven and eight, Matthew chapter three, John's now addressing the Pharisees and Sadducees who are coming to, to the the place where he's doing the baptizing, he says to them, you brood of vipers. And I don't want to yell it at you guys, right? But you have to imagine the intensity with which John is preaching already. It's a guy who eats bugs and honey, and he's dressed in a camel skin, right? He's already probably like up here, right? I mean, some sermons all come out here being a level 10, and you're like, I can't handle this intensity. I believe that was probably John, okay? And I'm guessing that he had spit coming out of his mouth when he's screaming these words at these Pharisees and Sadducees. They're religious professionals. They're literally me, okay? So every time I read their word, I know that's got to be me, right? It's the guys that, like, make their living at doing religion, okay? He says, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Now, this next part is what we want to focus on today as we explore the word repent and what I think is probably our final session on the word repent. But he says, what? He says, produce, what? Georgetown, are you with me? Produce fruit. He says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So we want to know today, what does it look like to produce fruit? As a bunch of backsliders, and I'll speak for all of us because we're all human, right? We've all done this goal-setting thing. We've all done this, I want to live a new life before Christ thing. As Mark said, I want to put on the new creation, the new self. But we've all backslidden, have we not? We've all found ourselves over here just a little farther from Jesus than we intended to be in our walk with him. And so that's why I think it's important for us to examine what it means to repent and to add to the word repent a third process, a third step to take today. So in our last couple of sermons, we remembered that in the, word, in the action of repentance, we will number one, recognize the wrong we've done, right? And, and that's for everyone. We'll recognize the wrong we've done. We call it sin. Number two, we trust who with that wrong? Do you guys remember? Who do we trust with the wrong? Do we trust ourselves or do we trust God? Who do we trust? 
We trust God with that wrong, right? We trust him with it. We don't get into DIY redemption because that is disastrous. And so our third, our third step of repentance, you could say, is to take action, to, to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. That's why I skipped those verses in Matthew chapter 3. I would so much love to be linear with you, but I think to understand the word repentance, I want to hit pause and look at 7 and 8, where John is screaming at these Pharisees and Sadducees and saying, produce fruit, produce fruit. Now, I'm not going to call you all Pharisees and Sadducees, but these were religious professionals. They were like experts at going to church and knowing the word of God. Some of you may find yourself in a similar position. Maybe you're not like a Hebrew scholar, but you've gone to church for 40 or 50 years, right? And maybe just like Stephen was singing, maybe it has become a little more routine. Maybe it is just singing another song. So today I want to ask that we would allow God to examine our hearts by his living word. All right, so what does produce fruit look like? We want to examine that, and we want to use some of the words of Paul. So I'm going to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. If you guys want to follow along there, 2 Corinthians is definitely more like the third letter that he's written to them, but we only have two of them. Okay, and we'll see why just in, uh, in a, later, uh, a later piece of this. But uh, I didn't want to say it there. I want to say it here. And it will make sense when we get there later. So we read in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, Paul is now addressing uh, a church or a group of churches. We're not entirely certain. We can't know that. But Paul is addressing a group of believers and here's what he says about repentance. He said, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Okay, so, so we want to examine what kind of sorrow is it that we have in our lives when we say, all right, Lord, I'm, I'm living repentantly now. I'm repenting. I'm, I'm coming back to you, right? I'm recognizing my wrong. I'm trusting you with that sin. I'm taking action. But how will we know that the repentance that we're executing is the type that leads, brings salvation, brings repentance, leads to salvation. How will we know that our repentance is the kind that does not lead to death? I'm interested. Does anybody else really prefer to not die? I much prefer not dying. It is like one of my top priorities every day I wake up. So we want to examine our repentance via the words of Paul and say, is our repentance... Is our sorrow one that is godly or one that is worldly? So what is godly sorrow? How is it different than worldly sorrow? I'd invite you guys to turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. And just as you turn there to Luke, I want to remind you, we're, we're examining this word repentance where John the baptizer's come and commanded it to all of those who are listening to him preach, and now the Pharisees and Sadducees, and he said this, this curious phrase, which is, at the beginning of Matthew, curious, but as we go through the book of Matthew, we're going to see this theme of fruit, and we're even going to see Jesus now applying it, anybody surprised, to the same characters, to the very same characters, we'll see Jesus applying these same themes. So I'm in Luke 15, and we're, we're here because we're examining what kind of sorrow do we have 
kind that's godly or a kind that's worldly and leads to death. I'm reading from verse 11 to verse 20. If you would follow along on the screen or in your scriptures, I'll read it to you. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to the father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach. Because remember, he's in a country of famine, right? He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. I want to look at three things that lost son does. Right here in Luke 15, we see three things the lost son does. And we're familiar with these, aren't we? Because he recognizes the wrong he does. He recognizes in his life the sin that he's living in. The second thing that the lost son does is he turns towards God. He trusts God with that sin. He trusts his father, as Jesus puts it, right? And then, and this is critical now because we're, we're inquiring of the scripture, what does it mean to produce fruit? The lost son turns back, and over here we've got this sinful life. We've got this famine-filled country where he's feeding pigs to try to stay alive, but he's not even getting the pig food. And he turns his back on that, and he begins an active pursuit of his father, right? So inherently, two things are happening there, and, and I don't think we need like a scientist to examine this for us and determine. Like when he's turned towards his father and he's pursuing his father, he's now, he's leaving that sin behind, isn't he? Because as he moves towards his father, he moves away from his sin. And I know, I'm aware that I am making this overly simplistic, but it's also true, is it not? Is it not what God's Word says? It's true that as he turns his back on the sin to move towards the Father, he's actively pursuing a relationship with his Father. He's actively trying to have a restored relationship with his Father, where he knows his needs will be met, where he knows he will be seen no longer as a servant, or a slave, but over here, he'll be a son. He's actively pursuing sonship, which means he's leaving behind slavery. This is what producing fruit looks like. So I want to ask, George, I want to ask you this morning, do you, do you, when you recognize that there's sin in your life, when you identify a sinful place in your life, when you see a place where whether it's by omission or whether it's by commission, you recognize sin and you decide you're going to trust God with it. Now, John says to produce fruit, right? He says to do something, create something in your life that is not just a, a sitting with the pigs in the famine, in the condition of slavery. 
Paul says that godly sorrow produces, brings repentance that leads to salvation, and that worldly sorrow leads to death. Now, what if the lost son had stayed here in this country of famine? No food. I guess he's getting paid. Maybe he lives. But what if he turns his back on that life and pursues a relationship with the father? Well, then we've got life, right? We've got sonship. We've at least got food, right? I have a quote from Dallas Willard in a book called The Great Omission. He says that grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is not opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning. Because earning is an attitude, and effort is an action. Effort is an action. And that grace is not opposed to. So, so we've seen a picture of godly sorrow. We'll see one more briefly as we revisit the Corinthians. But now we want to look at worldly sorrow. And this is a, a bit of an examination of two or three people that we looked at um, in a previous message when we talked about who we trust with our sin. So I think it all falls under two categories. Do you try to cover your sin, or do you try to confess your sin? So just remember with me, I don't want to turn to all these places, but remember, recall with me Judas. He received 30 pieces of silver from the chief priests from the temple guard, or hired the temple guard, and the chief priest gave it to him. In an return, he agrees to turn over Jesus at a time when the crowds are not around him. And so Jesus is turned over, and Judas is cut to the heart. He recognizes his wrong. But what does Judas do? Do you remember? Does he, does he confess the sin, or does he try to cover it? Does he trust God, or does he DIY redeem? Judas throws back the coins, and he runs out, and he kills himself. Now, I'm not going to be redundant, but we remember that godly sorrow brings redemption that leads to salvation, no regrets, and worldly sorrow brings death. Hold that in your mind as we now remember David, who, when he saw Bathsheba, had her brought to him, commits adultery, conceives a child, and then tries to confess or cover up. Remember? Covers it up. And he covers it up literally with death. So with his sinful choice, he then chooses cover, and he tries to cover that sin. Worldly sorrow brings death, Adam and Eve. The other, couple, the other couple of folks we examined, when they choose to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, what do they do when God's walking in the garden? Do they cover or confess? Adam and Eve choose to cover. And that covering, their attempt to cover, leads again to death. So as you examine in your own life, are you, are you like 1 John 1, 9, are you confessing your sin to one another? Are you confessing your sin to God? Because he will make us righteous, right? God will restore us when we trust him with our sin, when we turn our back on our sin and we lead a life that is in an attempt to restore a relationship with him. Or are we like the Corinthians? Now, I'd said to you that we want to revisit the Corinthians. And uh, before we wrap up, I want to revisit them this time in 1 Corinthians, if you want to read along with me. This time we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And this is why I wanted to talk to you about the letters, because it can get confusing. 
So, Rod, I want to hit verse 9 first, if I can do that. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. And remember, we're looking now at godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow, where godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation, and worldly sorrow leads to death. And we're looking at that because we hear John say, produce fruit. And we all backslide. We all have the same sin problem. So we want to know that our practice, our habit, our routine of dealing with sin is measured, is clear, there's nothing confusing about it, and we have markers along the way to know that we are leading a life that is pleasing to Christ. Because as everyday people, and every one of us is an everyday person, our mission is to turn everyday people into fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. We can't do that if we're not repentant. We can't do that if we're confident that the repentance that we're producing is really one that's got godly sorrow and produces fruit, right? So I want to look at the Corinthian church and watch their progress. Okay, so that's why I want to start in verse 9. It says, um, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. All right, so that's a letter we don't have. All right, that's why 1 Corinthians is kind of like his second letter, but it's 1 Corinthians because it's the first one in our Bibles, right? Okay, so now let's jump then to verses 1 and 2. Now, this is the Corinthian church or church's response to that letter, right? That Paul is, his timeline just, because of the way he was making his point, it's jumbled to us, right? We're not viewing this as a letter to a bunch of churches. We're almost viewing this as a scientific text to make sure that we're doing everything correctly, right? But it was a letter initially, so Paul's not crazy. All right, so in verses 1 and 2, now we read this is their response to that first letter that Paul writes. We don't have it. This is their response. This is the response of the church to Paul saying, don't associate with sexually immoral people. These are Christians he's writing to, right? This is just hard to keep in your mind, but these are Christians, okay? I mean, Robin just said this two or three weeks ago. These are actually Christians, okay? It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. That means in and amongst the church and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate like the world, right? A man is sleeping with his father's wife. So broken, right? And you're, you're proud? You're, what? You're proud? Shouldn't you rather not have gone into mourning and put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? In the, in the ESV, it says, and you're arrogant. So their response is not, not even to cover it. It's actually to say like, yep, yeah, they're a church member. They go, they go to church with us, and he's sleeping with his father's wife. Definitely a church member here. Everything's good. That is a crazy amount of response to sin that I, there's no scale in my mind that it even measures on, right? Until you start to think like an unredeemed human being who does not trust Jesus to redeem their heart and make them into the very image of God, then it makes sense, doesn't it? So if we're leaving an unregenerate an unsanctified, a life that has no bearing on like looking for where is God, right? If we're leaving that kind of a life, then worldly sorrow looks like, ah, sorry, I got caught, right? It doesn't look anything like turning our back on that sin. The Corinthians' response, in fact, was, yep, that's sin. Look at that. But then I want you to revisit with me 2 Corinthians 
That's chapter 7 again. And that's going to help us see not only that God has the power, and this is the hope for us today, Georgetown. This is the hope for us today. Because can you imagine a church? Now, we're not perfect, okay? God, you know we are not. I am not perfect. You're not perfect. We're a church full of people, so we're not perfect. But this church was so jacked up that I had to go show you those specific verses because look at the power of God at work in their hearts and lives. Look at the fruit that he produced in their lives. The, the Lord produced this fruit in their lives. Now join, join me uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I just want to hit verse 10 again real quick. before I, Can we go to verse 10 again, Rob? I want to hit verse 10 again. And then we'll roll into verse 11 together. If you want to follow on the screen, then Rod, I know, is looking for it. But verse 10 is a goner. All right. Sorry, verse 10. I'm going to read it from my scripture for you guys, okay? And you guys can follow along in yours. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, this is the third letter he's writing. The first one, do not associate with sexually immoral, right? The second one, I cannot believe your response was arrogance. You were proud of it. Now, the third one, I know it's number two, but the third one that we have evidence of, right? Now, now, oh, Rod does have it. Thank you. Okay, so let's go to verse 11 now that you found 10. So now follow, follow the amazing work of God in their lives and their hearts because they have recognized the wrong. They have trusted God with that sin. They have turned away from that sin. Look at the way that Paul describes their move towards the Father, and they're turning away from the sin. Listen to some of the verbs and some of the adjectives in here. For see what, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness. And think as I read this, think, is this the kind of repentance that is characteristic of me when I encounter sin in my life, okay? Because I'm not saying you're like the Corinthians, but I am saying that you're like me and we're a sinner. So see if these words would describe your repentance. This godly sorrow has produced in you what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation Imagine John with spit coming out of his mouth when he sees the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming. He says, you brood of vipers, right? Do you see sin and say, oh, disgusting. You're like alarmed at it. What longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. Now, these are the same Corinthians that were super proud of that sin. And they even responded in arrogance. But now they're a group of people who expelled sin who were shocked at sin, who were indignant at sin. So we can look at the Corinthians and we can say, does my repentance look like that? Or does it look like worldly sorrow that's just kind of sad that it got caught? Or is it like godly sorrow that's trying to move away from sin as it moves towards a restored relationship with the Father? We'll get right back to the Father as we conclude here. But I want to share with you guys, um, as I said, he's posted it all over social media. So uh, my friend J.D., oh, backslider, right? And we can all identify. We've been backsliders too. But J.D., uh, I can't count the number of times that he would say, okay, I'm, I'm back in the program, and my family's back with me, or they've let me back in the house, right? Because he chased that next hit and that next high years beyond the time that we were friends in high school. But J.D. eventually began to trust God and to move 
towards him at such a regular frequency that he had a routine, a habit, a practice. I would dare say a daily practice, and I don't know that, but I would argue that it might have been because it was obvious that eventually his trust was placed firmly in God to restore his identity as an image bearer of Christ. I say this because year upon year, the frequency of J.D.'s social media went from pray for me, I fell again, to here's where I went to church with my family this weekend, to here's where I joined the church with my family this weekend, to here's where we're now serving in our church, to here's a ministry we started in our church, to we're selling everything. And we're going to tell people about the good news of Christ's new life that he's offered me because I was over here a disaster. And look at what he's made me as I've pursued him, as I've turned towards him, trusted him with my sin, and asked him to make me new. And so now he's in the process of selling his house. What a market to sell your house in, right? He's in the process of selling a house that he and his wife have built themselves. And they're going to use every dime to go share the good news of Jesus with a homeless community in a state that they've never lived in. Because Christ, just like the Corinthians, was able to take a disaster that they were proud of and turn it into a dream that none of us could ever imagine. A relationship with God that entirely changed his identity. He's no longer looking for the next high. He's looking for how he can get closer to Christ. So my, my question for you this morning, Georgetown Christian, is, is, is your repentance characterized by earnestness, by eagerness? Does it produce fruit in that you probably would describe yourself as moving closer to God and, and maybe you would not describe yourself as one who was willing to maybe sit in the sin or stay near or around the sin, but as one who is actively pursuing the Father? We talked about the lost son and it's not commonly called the lost son, it's called the prodigal son, because we all saw that he says, I'm going to return home, right? And so as he's turned towards home and he's walking home, part B of that verse 15 says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. So imagine, Christians, that that this walk that you have to make back to the Lord is not one where you have to wander along aimlessly and hope that somewhere you're going to find God along down the line, but that this walk is that one that when you turn and begin your way home, that the Lord is running to you by the power of His Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian right now, it is alive and at work in you saying, this is what I want to work on. This is what I want to restore in your life. This is the disaster that I want to turn into a dream that people never imagined that you could have lived right? This is how I want to make you into my image. That Holy Spirit is alive and at work in each of us, and we have that hope if we have trusted Christ with our lives. If we have placed our hope in Him exclusively, that hope is alive in each one of us today. If you've not, then we have a Next Steps ministry right outside. It's in our lobby, and I'm going to talk to you guys about, um, about some of the ministry that goes on in our lobby and in other areas of our church after our last song. But if you've not made that decision, or you believe that you have a next step that you need to take 
in your faith towards God, away from sin, I encourage you to find someone at our next steps booth. Would you bow your heads as we pray this morning? Father God, we're so grateful for the opportunity that you give us to be made in your likeness, to be called your sons and daughters, to have hope that by the power of your Holy Spirit you restore us to who you want us to be. Father, I thank you that you give each of us a place in your family. I thank you that you give us a church to help us see our sin, to help us faithfully move towards you, to help us become Christ-like. Father, as we endeavor to, to turn everyday people, including ourselves, into fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, I pray this morning that as we reflect on whether our repentance is one that is characterized by godly sorrow or worldly sorrow, that you would convict us of where it is truly godly and where it is truly worldly, that we might begin living a life that reflects your love and your holiness. Father God, we trust you to do these things. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.